0: Welcome to Episode 8 of the Stageworthy Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. On Stageworthy, I interview people who make theatre, actors, directors, playwrights, and more, and talk to them about everything from why they chose the theatre to their work processes and anything in between. My guest is Laura Pichinen, a dancer, actor, and playwright from Toronto. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use and consider leaving a comment or rating. first draw towards theater?
1: It was kind of like... I was never drawn to it. I was put into it. And so for the, you know, as a bored kid, I had a lot of energy. So I was in dance, you know, soccer and baseball and and Mm -hmm. theater class in the summer. Always theater camps in the summer, horseback riding camp and theater camp. And it was just fun. And I knew it was fun. I didn't ever know it was a job. I only knew it as fun forever. I just, it didn't occur to me that people did that. And so later when it became time to choose a career, I chose teaching and I became a teacher. And then the second I got the job, I went, this isn't very fun and I don't <laughs> like it. And then I and I had other people in the business. I had other friends who were dancers, other friends who were musicians and actors. And I, for some reason, it did not click in my head. You could do this. You have the training, you have the talent, the ability, the whole shebang. I mean, I would need to start back at the front again to, you know, build a resume, build yeah. up the confidence and, and take some training. But uh, anyway, so I did a big pivot turn right out of teaching and started back at the beginning into theater. And then the after that decision, mm-hmm. the more I got into it, the more I was like, oh, okay, this is it. This is for me. This is where my love is. This is where all my energy, I feel that it's useful instead of being drained out of mm-hmm. me. I find other careers ones that aren't for me, take all the energy I have and just suck it out of me. And instead, I could do 10 or 8 hours of theater and still feel good when I came home, energized
0: even. Well, a, a job or, or that isn't right takes all of your energy to, just to stay with.
1: Yeah, to be there and to wake up every day and go, oh,
0: Yeah. why?
1: And, and I have never felt that with... With performance, with any of my performance career as a dancer, singer, or actor, I've never woken up and been like, I don't want to do that. There's times where I woke up and I'm tired, Mm -hmm. but I knew the job I was about to go do, whether or not it was going to be 10 hours Mm -hmm. of rehearsal, was still going to be a good day. A day I would take over any other kind of work, because the other work is soul-sucking. All of it, in fact. I haven't ever found another job that I like Mm -hmm. to do. And that makes me nervous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I I can see that. Did you stop teaching entirely? Nope,
1: I still teach. I was supply teaching for a long time. This will be my fifth year as a supply teacher, which really is the worst job, in my opinion. It's... It's difficult to do. The kids don't like you. They don't know you. They don't really want to talk to you. You're useless as a teacher because you're not actually teaching anything. You're more or less just supervising a group of people. And so it was really, really boring. And then and then, just by luck, about in October, right after the Thanksgiving weekend, I got a call from a colleague of mine who said, mm-hmm. I need somebody to come in for a half day from now until the end of the year to do dance and to do this thing called student success. And Mm. student success is supposed to be where kids who are just about to fail, uh, their classes come in for a little bit of extra support. But actually, it's just like a little jail for the worst kids in the school. Yeah, it's it's a place where all the worst kids come to be housed so that their classes can go on without them because their teachers are having such a hard time trying to get them to be quiet, sit down, stop lighting things on fire, whatever. So those kids come to me. So, anyway, it's fun to teach dance, except it's, it's high school dance, so they're, course, not, yeah. they're not dancers. No. They're not even, uh, they're not movers, they're, they're nobody in that sense. <laughs> but they're trying to try. The more they like me, the more they want to do that's, it.
0: I mean, that's a start. That they're at least trying. In a yeah. lot of cases, a high school student doesn't like to try. I know best.
1: that's the hardest thing is getting them. I have to, you know, call them one by one to do the warm up, and I keep saying this is fun. Why aren't you having fun? So I am still teaching, but only as a means you know, to make the money to live the life so that I can afford to train for of the course. career I really want. Of course. Now, so now I've, like, up the ante. I'm training in aerial hoop, and I'm training in uh, I have my voice lessons every week. I'm yeah. getting in a lot of class time, which is good. But, you know, where's that balance between my, my job and my career? Yeah. Where, do, where do I spend most of my time? And my job has the money, but my career needs my attention. So... You
0: have so. To, I guess you have to put, put it in everything. Because you... You have to have the job so you can keep the roof over your head, mm-hmm. but you have to do the training to get where you want to go. Yeah. So I guess you just don't stop until you go to sleep.
1: Yeah. I work very hard at uh, the career that doesn't pay me at all and pretty hard at the job that I do. Uh, teaching is, it's not, it was not as hard because of the the classes. I'm teaching dance. I don't have to do a lot of preparation for, mm-hmm. not a lot of marking because it, it happens in the moment. So mm-hmm. I can tell. Uh, Same with this student success. I don't have to do any marking or grading. Mm -hmm. I'm not their teacher. I'm their helper. So luckily, I don't have to put a lot into that teaching thing except when I'm there, which is Mm -hmm. draining. But then the rest of the day is writing or acting or finding some sides or getting a new song or looking up uh, interviews or... That gives
0: you something to look forward to when things are rough. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kind of... um, the, the best thing I ever did for myself was plant a million seeds all over the place in everything. So writing and dancing and singing and acting and anything I can get my hands on to do It seems like, okay, whenever there's a lull, whenever I'm having a bad day or when I have some time off, I can say, okay, well, I'm working on something, so I better go focus my attention on that. It helps with the rejection process of, you know, not getting a lot of auditions or no callbacks, not the role. And every time you go through that, you know, it hurts you a little bit. But if you have something else you're working on Mm -hmm. or something to just shift your energy and your focus onto, it's not so bad. It really takes the edge off of that.
0: One of the hardest lessons I ever learned when I was when I was trying to act full time was that yeah, not getting the gig hurts. Mm. But if you don't enjoy the audition process, learn how. Yeah. Because it's your resume. It's how you like. It's how you get the job. And if you don't learn, if you don't enjoy what happens in the room, they can tell. Yeah. So you just have to learn how to <clears throat> how to not want. It too much, so you can actually
1: have a good, like, time. a good
0: time. Like be in the room, yes. Rather than, am I good? Like i thinking, do I get this job? Am I doing okay? Am I doing okay? Because mm-hmm. they can sense that.
1: Yeah, and it's a it's a completely different skill auditioning and being a performer are are not the same thing
0: i've known people who are really amazing auditioners and Mm -hmm. not great in a show
1: yeah and the vice and the opposite is true as well because you it is a skill it's like interviewing uh, the way that interviewing is a skill and i've only recently gotten good at auditioning i've i at the beginning when i first learned how to sing and i would have thought this was a joke Mm -hmm. but i actually went to go sing and like "Yeah, Uh yeah, and then it and, was so tense, right? so tense yeah. and so nervous and just and had so much doubt in myself, and I was new so that doubt was there was nothing that I had to kind of quell that doubt there was there was no confidence there was just yeah. all I needed was strict affirmation from other people in order to feel good, and so I did some pretty shitty auditions, but luckily I was still I was more or less still being myself, and what i've just discovered is I have to just go into the room be the best version of uh, me that I can be in the five minutes they're going to give me and then walk out of it just being glad that I had a good time. Because the they that panel needs to see you, who they're going to work with, why do they like you, why are you special, what are you going to bring for yeah. them.
0: And you also can't carry the audition around with you all day. No. Especially if you're like a person who's going... And I know a few people who do this. Sometimes they want to audition to the next audition to the next audition. Mm-hmm. You just have to let everything, when you leave the room, that's where it stays. Yeah.
1: And sometimes I'm great at that. Sometimes I walk out and I go, ah, oh, whew, huh, it doesn't bother me at all And then I just about to fall asleep and I'm like, Oh I said that word really weird or or just that yeah. little it's like when you're a server and you 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 know you got that like cider ranch you're supposed to give to a table or like a water or something like that and I, <laughs> you forget the whole shift, you go through the whole shift, you're so busy, you're so busy, you just lay down, and you're like, Ah oh, I forgot got water. to yeah. do that. Yeah. It comes to me like that and that like that overwhelming doubt and that feeling of rejection, like why didn't. They pick me, and I've caught myself just before going to bed, just sending out that message, pick me,
0: and then <laughs> and then
1: falling asleep. Like that's yeah. that
0: helps me go to sleep. Yeah, it, it's hard though because you've got to. Um, well, it's something that you want, and when you want something, how do you not like just worry about getting it?
1: And how do you not? continue to try to get it so you know you do the audition you leave the room and that's the end of your involvement yeah. they either call you or they don't you so badly want to go in and be like oh yeah remember when i said that thing i i'm not usually like that or i don't usually or i usually do this or whatever you want to explain and qualify all of the things you yeah. did
0: and sometimes when they don't pick you it's not even you yeah it's not what you did it's we already cast this one guy, and i don 't think she look good with him or don 't think he like, mm-hmm. i don't think that they they look like brother and sister or something like that like there's all sorts of things that are so out of your control
1: mm-hmm. now i've caught myself comparing my Self to other people who got the role mm-hmm. that I wanted. And I said, like, okay, she's got brown eyes. They wanted brown eyes, okay? Her hair is like this. My hair could be like that. Or, uh, she, oh, she's taller than me. I, they wanted a tall girl. What can I do? You know, and you pick and pick and pick and, yeah. pick, and pick and pick and pick. And you can drive yourself insane. Mm-hmm. and And you will. For a while, it's not easy to let it go. But... Mm-hmm. What makes it easier for me is that if again, like if I have planted a million seeds and I have a bunch of things to do, I can't dwell on one thing because I got something else I really love coming up really quickly. And that's a gift of being busy because even in the beginning, I could have tried to be as busy as I wanted and still not—I would not have been busy because you need to know what you're doing. You need to know people. You need to know where you're going to go to do all this training. You're gonna—you—you need to build slowly before you can get on any kind of a role. And just now, I'd say I'm about three years into deciding that this was my career. Um, and only now do I find that feel that I'm artistically fulfilled, that mm-hmm. I have enough stuff going on in my life, that I'm always doing something creative, and I'm always doing something that makes me feel good. I'm sometimes being paid for it, mm-hmm. but that that comes later.
0: That does come later. You do have to pay your dues. Oh, and, my God. You know, it's like, that's the decide. phrase. <laughs> it is the phrase, but it's so true. Like, you do have to work for free for a little while. Yeah. Um. And that's just, just the way it is. That's the unfortunate truth. And it's, it's, it's the only... There's so few professions where that's even acceptable. Yeah. You know? But as an actor, you have to build up your resume. You have to show that you can... Do the work, have the show. So the only way to do that is to do the show, and nobody's going to pay you to do that for a little mm-hmm.
1: while. And there's a very fine line between paying your dues and being taken advantage of. Yes, there is. And, and I recently just learned this lesson. You
0: have to learn to tell the difference. There are yep. some shows, um, like amateur theater. Honestly, nobody gets paid in amateur theater. It's called, well, it's called mm-hmm. amateur community theater. But when there are theater companies, and there's some out there that do a show and they never have any intention of paying the actors, but they're making like a lot of money. So mm-hmm. they're making like, okay, so we're going to charge 80 bucks a ticket. 80 bucks a ticket. That means the profits are will be great. No, no, no. We're just going to put that back into the company. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and
1: that's not and you it's the responsibility of the emerging artist to draw that line and to stick by it yeah, and i absolutely. think that's very difficult when you're i found this especially as a dancer because there's a million people to replace you because dancers is not as specific as an actor you you know you have to have the right exact look with hair eyes height whatever dance is a little bit more flexible you could have you need a group of people yeah. so any individual in that group is pretty much replaceable yeah. so i think dancers get the worst end of the stick and you have you have to look after for your own safety Mm -hmm. you have to look after if they're giving you an honorarium are they giving it enough is that enough to interest you in the project and then you have to say if this isn't safe if this isn't fair if i don't feel good if they don't respect me then why am i here exactly this isn't helping me become a better dancer Mm -hmm. this is this is a name on a resume that i'm ashamed to have on the resume because of the way i've been treated
0: not just that because you're not the only person like yeah like when that happens, a lot of times you know that when somebody looks at your resume and they go, "Oh, oh, mm-hmm. I know what
1: happened
0: there."
1: Because if you feel that way, it's a good chance that other people feel yeah. that way too. Yeah, and it is your responsibility, and it's difficult because if you're an emerging artist, you are desperate for work. Of like course. truly, truly desperate. And there is always going to be people who are desperate for work, and so you have to be one of those people who wants work but demands a certain level of respect and accountability from your employer yeah. because it's it's it, the economy is bad the arts is not that far behind bad and so you have to be responsible you mm-hmm. have to be you have to take that chance that somebody's not going to like you because you have to stand up and say i think you need to give me 50 dollars more
0: i think in a lot of cases performers are often afraid to to make that you y- know? You yeah yeah to say that because what if they're like get out
1: yeah, you know? what if they tell you to get out, and what if they know somebody really important? That's,
0: I think, that's more the fear than... Who do they know? Persons. Who, who they are know? they? What if they say, what if they say, Phil Rickaby left my show, he's an asshole, and then that, that person who could have given me a job, now when my resume comes across his, day, his desk, he's like, oh, that Phil Rickaby, there's his, I hear he's an asshole.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's all it takes, because... Uh, uh, casting directors in this panel are looking for any reason to kind of get people out of the running because they want to narrow it down. So if they have just a bad feeling or if they heard something once, they're probably not going to go and investigate and try and clear your name. They're probably just going to take that fact and just walk away with it. But despite that risk, it's kind of like, do you want to work in a world where you're treated like that? Why did we become part of this profession if we were just going to accept that kind of behavior? So... So it is risky and, but, and it can kind of create like a glass ceiling when you start saying no to things and then people stop offering you jobs at those companies mm-hmm. or in those communities, you, really, you slow down. But I think less work but better work is, is better than a bunch of crap
0: mm-hmm. I, I also think like, the companies that I would trust are like maybe, I don't mind if I'm working on a fringe show or I'm working on something like that, if they're upfront about mm-hmm. what the financials are, like, let's, you know, itemize. Here's everything we cost. Here's what we made. This is the truth, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't mind that. Yeah, that very, is fine. Very seldom does that
1: happen. Yeah, and I think there's festivals everywhere just like that, and and we all know what they are, and they're respectable because they're festivals that are structured that way. Um, we we know that, especially mm-hmm. with Fringe. We know that nobody's being paid, but we also know that the... the we respect the artists who are a part of Fringe because we know what it does, yeah. and and that's acceptable. But where I've draw the line is there are companies who are making money off of not paying their dancers, like you said, where they, they are charging money for the tickets, and they are just keeping it, mm-hmm. or they're paying people who are less disposable than you which is for some reason always the tech team Mm -hmm. you you need a tech team and i don't think they should be paid less i think we should be paid more they they always pay the lighting guy they always pay for for sound they always pay that kind of thing when and then they just oh the aggro forget about it you know
0: what the difference is the difference is that the lighting guy won't work for nothing
1: exactly and somehow we've managed to get into this rotational thing that that dancers and actors and singers will and we gotta stop doing it and we all have to stop doing it and then uh, hopefully in this world that i want to live in where everything works out perfectly is if we all stopped then the people who are taking advantage of good good talent is gonna run out of that talent and they're gonna be producing crappy shows Mm -hmm. with people who don't aren't really invested who aren't trained who bring in bad money, and then their suffering will make them change. Okay, maybe I need to pay people. If I want high-end results, I have to pay people who have spent their entire lives training, especially dancers. It drives me so much. It drives me nuts. It's like the dancer's that I've ever known have all worked so, so hard. It is not easy being a dancer. It's not easy being a singer or an actor either, but dance is painful and it's, and it takes a very long time. There's a lot of stress. There's not a lot of progress at first. There's so many different styles so that if you're shut down from one style, you feel like a complete failure at a, as a dancer because you can't be a ballerina and a hip hop dancer simultaneously. It's, it's different bodies. It's different movements, but you're expected of that. And to see the dancers being paid an honorarium of $20 for a three-hour performance is just mm. sickening. Mm. To think about the hours of sweat and yeah. blood literally into that talent and training to just have it brushed off as if you're one in a million kinds of people who could come in and do that job. It's just not true.
0: Let's back up for a second because you sort of glossed over at the beginning a little bit about how you started in theater. Mm. We just sort of like it was a uh, an afterthought, but let's, when, so dance, singing, and theater, did they all happen together?
1: I think theater started first with these summer camps, always in summer, every year, and dance was a quick behind. Uh, it came up in maybe when I was 12, which is late for a dancer, but still early in my life. Um, when my, again, it's an energy thing I I went to, I had did gymnastics And then uh, the gymnastics uh, studio closed I did rhythmic gymnastics Again, that studio closed I kind of just wandered around And my mom said, okay, why don't you just go here and it, this studio they put me with in a Canadian dance company in Oakville. The only reason I ended up there is because they didn't offer classes on Friday nights. And Friday nights with my family is pizza night. So uh, we wanted to avoid Friday. Of so course, that, yeah. that was the whole decision making is avoid Fridays, get Laura to do something so that she calms down. Um, and I stayed there. And I, I jumped quickly from um, a recreational program to competitive. And I was there for... Eight years until I graduated high school, and I went to Nova Scotia for my uh, d- bachelor's degree. And um, halfway through my bachelor's degree, I my mom calls me and says, "Oh, Disney's coming, coming to town. Why don't you audition?" Is mm-hmm. Disney Tokyo and Disney Cruise Lines in the same weekend? And so my mom flew me back out from Nova Scotia to go do this audition. I'd never really done an audition before. I had been cast or placed in dance shows because of where I was uh, dancing competitively, Mm -hmm. but never auditioned. It was a good audition, super fun, did some ballet, did some jazz combos, uh, some push-ups, we did some lifts, a lot of waving. There was some waving and smiling components. (laughs) Um, And it was great. It was great. uh, It was fun. I went back to Nova Scotia, didn't really think much of it, because it wasn't my career. It was just kind of, my mom had mentioned it, so I went, and low, low pressure, Maybe a month later or something like that, I'm out at a bar night. We're having a dance team uh, drink-a-thon. And I'm walking around and the phone rings and it says, You know, hi, this is so-and-so from... Uh, Disney Tokyo. Do you are you interested in a job? I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm coming. She says. Usually people listen to the terms of the contract before they agree. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, hit me with it. What is it? Like what? Yeah. Okay. So eight months as Wendy from Peter Pan and Sleeping Beauty in mm-hmm. a in a show called One Man's Dream Two, and uh, it's just a fantastic uh, lip syncing kind of super fun show. And uh, and so that got me that got me going in the career. Mm-hmm. So I get to Japan, do my thing, super fun. Loved it, loved it, loved it. But the whole time I was there, I was just obsessed with my psychology textbook for the third year. I was really, really excited about doing this course called Abnormal Psychology. Can I so, ask
0: what you were studying? What was your major when you were going psychology to and history? Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have a joint major. So I was obsessed with taking this abnormal psychology course because it's so fascinating to me. And this links into the Suicide Cue is the play I wrote. So I love, love, love psychology, and I, that's always been true, and so while I was in Japan, I thought, okay, I need to I need to finish this degree, and so I followed that passion, and I don't regret that. It would have certainly been easier to come home from Japan having had that contract under my belt and then just zipped into the rest of my career, um, so that would have been really nice, but... Uh, my education couldn't wait. I I was reading the textbook in Japan, and actually the Japanese cast started calling me Bell because I was carrying because this you textbook. Reading, of yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. big. It was not easy, and like setting my my harness for Wendy and all this stuff, and setting the shoes. And they did. Oh, that's so cute. You're studying. And so I went back, finished my two year degree, uh, finished the rest of the degree, which was two years more. Uh, I haphazardly. Uh, Um, what's it called? Applied to teachers college because I needed another plan. Mm -hmm. And but I had planned to be an actress and a dancer at that point. I thought, okay, I'm gonna be done with my education and I'm gonna go. Um, but I got in to U of T, which is kind of rare because there's a lot of people who apply and don't get in. So okay, I thought I can do a year of teachers college and then bada boom bada bing out. When I'm in Teachers College, we all applied for the TDSB. It's kind of a crapshoot. You, you really, really don't get into TDSB. It's, it's a huge luck of the draw. I got in. So I thought, okay, I got to go. It, the, all these different signs just kept coming up. And really the philosophy of my life has been, if it's there and you love it, go for it. Mm. And so I, so flow, all this thing is flowing out, flowing out. I, in my first year of supply teaching, I get an LTO for the subjects I want the most, which is grade 11 and grade 12, intro to psych, social, and anthropology. This, has been the, this was the goal yeah. to be a teacher in this course. So I get there, I do the course, and I realize, well, uh, I'm kinda done. I, I chaperoned prom, I had my graduating class, they were so fun, I got all, all the information I wanted, I inspired this crowd of people, they were, they were wonderful students at a, a well-respected school, and uh, I didn't wanna do it anymore. I thought, okay, that that's it. Cause, because if I did it anymore, I would have to do it again. And I don't believe in doing things twice. Yeah. And I had not thought that through when I wanted to be a teacher, which is actually just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again with Even different people. Even if
0: you people. had done it again, if you had such a great year that first time, you would always compare it your, the year you were in and uh-huh. the year before.
1: And I knew I was just going to lose energy as it was going on because that information isn't isn't as interesting the second time right. you say it. And so... And so I went on this trip to New Zealand with an actor friend of mine. And the whole time I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my life? What, what am I going to do? And he just said, you know, you could be in the show that I'm in and you could do a good job. And that's all it took was nobody had ever said that to me Mm -hmm. ever like, oh, hey, by the way, you could do this as a profession. And just that suggestion was like, you are right and and then I did, and then it uh, completely turned around and that's all I did. I put all my effort into uh, getting back into shape as a dancer. I lost a little bit of it, but not too much because I was still young. Started taking acting classes, getting individual singing lessons. Now I'm doing aerial hoop. And because I, supply teaching is so boring, I started writing the play to to give myself a purpose while I was there.
0: Let's talk about the play. Okay. What? Is, tell, tell me about the play.
1: So the play is called The Suicide Key, and it's about. Two women, both with mental illness, uh, it's described as depression and anxiety, but it, it, those words don't really mean anything anymore. Diagnostically, sort of, and colloquially, even less. And so, but anyway, uh, two girls suffering from mental illness for a long time, so uh, say, I'm saying a decade or more, and one of the friends has decided she's done, she's done suffering, she's done Living, and she says to her friend, "I uh, I need to think about an end of life plan." And so the friend says, "Okay," and uh, because she understands, she understands that struggle. She understands that people who say it gets better are making a promise that they can't make. You don't know that, and there's a lot of things that do get better, and there's a lot of things that that you know time does heal. But if you're chronically ill with a disease or disorder that has no definitive cure then you don't have the authority to tell somebody that it's going to get better Mm -hmm. and furthermore you don't have the authority to tell them when they're done or not done fighting that disease or disorder and so the play is basically uh uh, describing the two lives of the women why the one girl wants to kill herself and why the other girl is okay with it
0: um what was the inspiration for this
1: i have um the degree i yes. i did yeah. and i have some personal experience with mental illness. It's my family myself my friends my colleagues people i've interviewed as part of my undergraduate degree and and things I've just picked up as as a human being and being thoughtful about what does that look like and and how are we helping people. And my research into uh, the medications that are being offered for people with depression is just unbelievable. I mean, there's so many, there's, you know, the basic neurotransmitters we're working with, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. So we have different kinds of medication that target one or more of those um, neurotransmitters. And who knows what they're doing? The medications, they work for some people and they don't work for other people. They, some people crash and burn. Some people uh, take too many or not enough or they be- become dependent and they go through withdrawal or it's not enough uh, medication so they need more. And there's nobody really monitoring that. And it's surprising because those medications, and this is a little label that says, oh, um, the side effect of this antidepressant might be suicidal ideation. Boop. You know, that's just a, a tiny, oh, yep. just, oh, by the way, yep. uh, this medication you're taking uh, could kill you. Um, and, and in and of itself can kill you. So not only have these doctors have, you just go and you say, I'm depressed, they go here. It's a very, it's a very short process. <laughs> Sometimes they offer you uh, psychotherapy and other things with it. If they're a good doctor, they, they, like, they want to bring that a little bit further. But a lot of the time they just hand you a bunch of pills and hope Mm. for the best. And and it's astonishing to me that somebody who has this kind of already, as a depressed individual, has this inner dialogue and this inner self that you cannot trust, that is trying to kill you and telling you all these negative thoughts, and now you're responsible for taking this medication that may or may not make things worse. And your responsibility is to decide, is that my medication or is that my life and Mm. my illness? And even separating your own thoughts from your illness is a challenge. And now you have to separate your thoughts, your illness and your medication. So come on, Uh, what are we doing to these people here? That's that. Why? And I just, so in the play, it it all comes out all these opinions about even the difference between physical and mental illness. Why do we take one more seriously than the other? Why do we, we all understand a headache, but when somebody has to call in, that because they're overwhelmed and they can't get out of bed we're like uh, uh just uh figure it out yeah, okay yeah and it's 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 i i don't even, i think the even the distinction between physical and mental illness just goes to show what we how little we really know about what illness means and why we're not respecting people and so we understand when somebody says you know they're dying of cancer or they have alzheimers or dementia and so they want they want end of life care and we euthanize pets and for for much less and we we understand that that's something that we are alleviating somebody of but for some reason with mental illness we're saying no if you could just try harder if you could just uh, meditate, or go to therapy, or just get it together, or just uh, start by doing this, start by doing that, blah, 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 all these suggestions from people who don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I'm sure they have good intentions, but do you understand what you're saying to somebody? You're making them responsible for their disorder. You're making them responsible for getting better when, in fact, they're suffering from something that is hurting them, and we're treating them as if they, for some reason, can overcome that naturally. And I think that's just a general misunderstanding about what the term mental illness means. Obviously, it has something to do with the biology of the brain. So, it is a physical illness. Mm-hmm. It's not made up.
0: No, it's a physical illness. I mean, but the... So, if somebody has a mental illness, if we treat it the same as, say, getting the flu or, or having cancer or something like that, we still treat the physical disease, so we have to treat the uh, mental illness. mm mm-hmm. um, Sometimes we don't do a very good job with the physical disease, but I mean we we still put a whole lot of effort into that. Um, so maybe the antidepressants are not they're not the solution, mm-hmm. but so like it's also, help. It's, yeah, it's help.
1: It's certainly, and I would encourage people to try antidepressants, but also to to have to say, you, you, somebody needs to be in charge of that. Somebody needs to be watching this process. Perhaps it's a, a journal entry to say, how am I feeling today and what's my dose and things like that because you need to be able to see uh objectively what's going on because uh from day to day uh depressed mind changes so quickly that it's easy to get wrapped into everything sucks and mm-hmm. everything yeah. hurts and everything has always been this way when that's not necessarily the case and no, um it's
0: not because that's that's the my friend that's what the disease makes you think the disease makes you think mm-hmm. that it's always been this way nothing will ever get better you're the fuck up you're yeah like, and that, that it you is, is you it. Yeah. that it's
1: you exactly. that you and the disease are one thing yeah and um and so a part of the, the play is advocating for um, end-of-life care for mentally ill people. Because I think it's important that at this time, if we know there's no cure, uh, that we should start letting people decide when they're done fighting this fight, that because there's nothing that we know is going to work to fix people, then maybe we have to just acknowledge that some people, whether we want to or not, are going to die of mental illness because we can't help them and they can't help them. And, And we might have to just say, it's okay. Because at this time, at this moment in time, we don't have a solution. And the next best thing is to let people stop suffering because what we want more than anything is for people not to suffer and live. But we don't get to win like that. We don't, we just don't get to win. And wouldn't it be nice if we could die with dignity of mental illness? In fact, um, while I was writing the play, a man who lived across the street from me committed suicide. And I happened to, I woke up, to him dying, he hit the pavement and made a very loud noise about five o'clock in the morning. And I shot up out of bed, ran over, saw saw him, called 911. And uh, the dispatcher told me to do CPR on him until uh, they came. And and I was kind of conflicted because I have all these beliefs about, about death and, and the right to die. And as I'm doing these chest compressions, first of all, it's terrifying. But besides that, I'm thinking well, if he really wanted to die, who who am I here to try and save him? But then I also thought, well, I don't really know him, so maybe it's a cry for help, so maybe I should save him. And so in the end, I just I kept doing them. It, it was pretty obvious that he was already dead, so my internal dilemma was kind of inconsequential at that point. Mm-hmm. But but it still, it made me think. And and I thought, okay, here's an opportunity to really reevaluate from a personal perspective how I really feel about this. and And actually, it reinforced... How, how I believe that wouldn't it have been nice if he could have died in his bed with one other person there happily at, or at least at peace, maybe not happily, but to have said to other people, I, I'm done and I have to go, would you mind holding my hand? Instead of jumping from the ninth floor mm-hmm. with a shirt around his head and a cell phone that's already dialed 911. What, what a way to go! Yeah. What a way to go after suffering for this was a middle aged man. This was not a teenager. This was a, a, a guy who, is, who, who had lived a life and was done. And so, wouldn't ha- it have been nice to have died with some dignity and with some love and some care? in those last moments instead of pushing everybody away, dying in secret and alone and outside mm. like that. that. That was his only choice. He didn't have a, a special little suicide machine where he could die in peace. Mm. And his death affected others negatively, which is not the way you wanna go. You don't, you don't want that. People who die yeah. in their closets or in their garages don't want, the reason people don't kill themselves is because they don't want to scare and hurt their families like that. What if those people were allowed and, and the family could know, then they could be prepared, they could say their last words, they could do all those things that, that, that these people deserve mm-hmm. before they died, of an illness, yeah. of something. They're not just making quick, fun decisions. They're yeah. taking this seriously, their death as seriously as their life. Furthermore, what if it was a teenager? What if every time a teenager felt suicidal, they, they would say something, and then we would go, all right, let's plan that. Let's plan that death if you really if you really feel that way. Let's let's plan it out. And teenagers having no sense of, you know, perspective, if they're shown what that death means, okay, you cannot see that movie. Your friends will never get to see you graduate. You don't get to go on that trip. You do not get to get married. When that perspective is forced on them, I think I think they make some different decisions. Of course, we're still gonna see people. It's not a solution. Not allowing death people to commit suicide is not, not a solution. Of course, there's still going to be people who, who do things that, that are yeah. out of sadness and yeah. that we can't help. But I'm just trying to think of some ways that, and I yeah. truly do believe that that would help at least some people. Yeah. Not, uh, you know, yeah. some, somebody, somebody out there yeah. wants this and can't have
0: it. Back to the suicide, back to the plague. Because that's, this is all like a lot of stuff. This is the play. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The play itself, um, where is it in terms of its... Uh, uh... Ah,
1: so the play is in an apartment, much much like this. Mm-hmm. It's just two girls talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an hour long. It's, it's hyper-realism. So it uh, they're cooking dinner. They're uh, smoking a joint. They're, um, it's very casual. They've been friends for a long time. Yeah. They, they know each other's stories. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit of reiterating their own life stories, but... It, much in the way that we're talking now, it's very casual. We're yeah. talking about death and depression and, and, and neither of us are on the floor crying. Um, so it's kind of, there's a humor infused yeah. uh, because it's, it'd, be, it'd be dark if it was just about this. Uh, yeah. but, but this is the first time, the conversation they're having is the first time where both characters get really vulnerable because if, this is, if she's really going to die, mm-hmm. then her friend needs to throw out all the stops. She needs to say, I, I was as bad as you were once And, and I've made it out just, just to let you know, this is possible. So the friend, the friend is having this conflict between supporting and understanding, but also, you know, she's going to die. The friend is going to die and, and you don't know when and, but, and you're going to be responsible uh, in a way. And, uh, so it gets, there's a huge tension and I believe that tension is something that anyone can relate to because why wouldn't you feel both those things at the same time?
0: Do you have a date for performance?
1: I had it uh, this year. We had everything all almost set up, and then uh, a really unfortunate thing happened, got it all knocked out. Ah. So it'll be next December into next January is the new proposed timeline uh, for the Suicide
0: Key. Have you workshopped it? Have you uh, have you uh, had I, actors read it? Read
1: I've it had again? I've held all my auditions. Yeah. We were really yeah, well, yeah. I I was ready to go. In, yeah. in fact, so I have I have my girls. I have yeah. my character, my two characters. I'm playing one of the characters, and I'm also directing it. So I've had I've asked a girl to come in and play the swing. Mm-hmm. So there's only two characters. So she's going to play course, both, yeah. and she's going to play the character I'm going to play. While I'm directing, and then her and I are going to swap in, and she's going to swap with the other character. So, and also, it's nice because the material is so heavy. If you're not in the mood, like it's not going to go well on stage. So, we want to have an extra person in there to rotate the cast around. Do
0: you have a venue? Uh, I, I wanted
1: factory theater. It, it seemed perfect. There's their, um, I can't remember if it's their studio. This, their smaller space yeah, yeah, because I yeah. really, I want an intimate audience. I want it to be kind of voyeuristic, the audience looking in on this play because it, it's a conver- it's an intimate conversation yeah. so I want it to be small but I want them to feel like they, they can hear everything and they're listening in as a as fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, either uh, pa- uh, Theater Pass Mariah has a, a lovely little space too. Uh, all the little theaters do, but I had booked with Factory Theater before I had to pull out. Right. So I, I would definitely, I'll approach them first, hoping they're going to forgive me. I mean, it wasn't too messy, but nobody wants to be the person who had to back out of a project. No, of
0: course, of so course, yeah. So I
1: think we ended up on good terms because, you know, we're both good people. It's just the circumstances around it kind of
0: length play two
1: acts one act it's one act yeah. it's an hour long um, the time constraint came from uh, different things i was while i was developing it uh different um different things came up about oh apply to your play here apply to your play so i had written a 20 page complete yeah. draft i thought oh i'm done it's 20 pages long and then i applied for with the playwrights guild of canada they had an emerging artist. Uh, Emerging Writers Playwrights Award, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to apply for that, and so but the requirements of that it had to be a sixty minute play, and so I thought, well, here's a challenge. So I took my twenty minute show and I really (laughs) filled it out, Uh and and it turns out that was such a blessing because I really thought I was done. I really thought I had it all done mm. at 20 pages and what a joke like it, it 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 was it was what i wanted but it was such a quick little thing like it yeah. it really the hour is what was needed and the hour allowed me to to infuse the humor and the in the real people aspect yeah. of it because it, the first draft it it was it was just straight to the point mm-hmm. and yeah. and nobody needs to be lectured about mental illness they i'm secretly lecturing people and hiding it in entertainment now
0: yeah. <laughs> um so is this your first play? Is this, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, and it all came about because I was feeling like such a useless supply teacher that I needed to write something, and uh, and the the title came first, the suicide key, and then I I built a play around what I truly believed, and then because the title, the suicide key, had gripped me so hard, I I immediately knew what to do, and I wrote actually the first draft, not the twenty page, but the first draft about. 10 or 15 pages I wrote it in one sitting I I knew as soon as I got that had that title I knew what I needed to write because I already had those opinions and I was just playing them off each other character
0: writing can be so um, so therapeutic sometimes Mm -hmm. and so um, I know for myself when I'm having a rough day at my day job I have a notebook I always bring a notebook with me Um, and I on a rough day it's beside me on my desk and I probably don't get to open it but I know it's there. Mm-hmm. I know it's there. I know that I could, on my lunch, pick up that book and write in it. I yeah. may not, but it's there. But it's so your safety could, net, exactly of, exactly, of
1: artistic expression. Yeah. I yeah. felt the same way. I would, I would open up the document, the suicide key document, every day I went to supply, and if I had an idea, it would yeah. already be up, and then I would just yeah. add to it, maybe a sentence. But it would give me that validation that I was doing something with my yeah. mind, with my work, with my creativity doing something. And it was an outlet. And, and as I started to round up that, that writing process, I thought, Oh, I, I have to, I have to do more of this. And it's not just about being creative. It's about propelling my career yeah. for it. I was mad. People weren't hiring me for things. I wasn't getting jobs. And I thought, you know what, if I want to be the character I want to be, then I better write that character. You
0: know, it's interesting because I've, I've spoken to a few people like this because I've talked to people who are um, recently out of theater school and people who have been out of school mm. for, like me, about 20 years. Mm. And when I was in theater school, the idea of um, writing your own show, like being a self-producing <laughs> actor, was like, that's not a thing that we ever discussed. Really? Fringe existed, and some people would do it, but it was mm-hmm. always sort of a... an ad, Like, nobody taught you how to self-produce. Right. It wasn't a thing that, that was part of the acting career. They prepared us to go to auditions, get the job, do the job, go to the next audition, get the job, do the job, mm-hmm. not write my own play, produce it, put it up, and, at, and around. It, yeah. yeah. That was never part of... But now, it's something that's, that's considered, for I think most schools, mm-hmm. a part of the program.
1: I, I can see why they would... Why it would not be something they would do, because... Being a performer and being a writer are not the same thing. Those skills aren't necessarily transferable.
0: They're, it's they're it's difficult. It is difficult, but it's worth it. Like, yes, if you if can do it or
1: if you can collaborate yeah. with somebody who can help you do it, this is a way off the ground. Yeah. And I this play has opened so many doors for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's even this yeah. I, I wouldn't have been able to contact you if I hadn't already written a play or yeah, had started have, to play, to play? Oh, yeah exactly, I had something right, to yeah. say to you yeah. same with uh, uh, the pitch Andy event at the Passamurai I had something to say yeah. when they offered that I didn't have to think about it I already had a play I needed to talk to them about right. same with other people uh, all these other people in my life who come in they say oh what are you doing I'm writing a play right. wow that sounds a lot cooler than I'm an unemployed
0: actor yes, it yeah, just yeah. it
1: pushed me yeah. forward in a group of people who are stagnant and 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 that's just the nature of the job—is to be standing still for a very long time.
0: I mean, at an hour long, the play is something that could could fringe tour.
1: Yes, and I've done—I've applied to the Fringe twice, and uh, not gotten in either time.
0: Have you just Toronto, or have you done
1: just Toronto for now? Yeah.
0: Do like apply to other ones?
1: Yeah, Uh, that became obvious this year
0: were you at the at the fringe lottery this yeah. year? Yeah, so was, I that was so
1: again. um yeah. I'm never going to do that again. Well, it was I, well, too ner- I, mean, I was too I was too nervous and waiting and you know, waiting and then the numbers all go by and it's not you and now what do you do? I'm
0: I will probably do it again. Good for you. But um because <laughs> I, I I've done it before, I know the I know what the odds are. Yeah. I know what the odds are. But there are other festivals. There's, you know, Montreal which is a great Little Fringe to mm-hmm. did, like to to start a show in
1: and Hamilton, Hamilton is not far. I'm, I'm
0: doing Hamilton London. this summer. London has a Fringe. Um, I Hamilton, got a car. Orlando. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, yeah, and yeah.
0: Winnipeg. I mean, if you've never. Being to Winnipeg Fringe, I recommend it.
1: Yeah, and you know what? Maybe being that a small pond is, is kind of a nice pond yeah. to be in, what's, and start start the buzz. What's What's funny make is, the that, is that you know
0: when we're from Toronto. We think that maybe Winnipeg is like a small pond Fringe, mm-hmm. number two in Canada. Really, you know what? A biggest. lot of comedy yeah.
1: comes out of Winnipeg too, and every yeah. time I, I'm surprised, but I shouldn't be because I know that.
0: No, there's such amazing work that happens in Winnipeg. I actually mm-hmm. know some amazing theater artists who do Winnipeg to Victoria and they don't come to Toronto. Really? They're brilliant but they've heard that Toronto isn't welcoming to Hmm. uh, touring shows so they don't even bother with it. Well... Um, there's some amazing work that goes on at some of those other festivals as well.
1: Yeah, and that that in and of itself is a full time job. Um, right now I'm applying for grants and I can't. Oh my god, I've well, got grant a grant writing
0: can be a full time job. Uh
1: huh, I know. I just keep employing myself to do more and more difficult things. But so there's a big one coming up February third for the Ontario Arts Council. Mm-hmm. You know, this twenty big twenty thousand dollar grant, yep. which is exactly what I need. And, um, yeah, I just, I'm scared. I've read the, I've read what I have to do. I have most of the information because I've applied to smaller grants. So yep. I've I know what I'm doing. I've got the work. I, I know I've listened to an hour and a half long webinar about applying for this grant yeah. and now I just have to do it are and it, oh, it's so daunting, but I'm going to. Are you a Ontario it. member? No.
0: Cause they, I mean, they also do a uh, patent mm. from the, from the uh, Ontario Arts Council does a seminar. Oh, yeah. With, uh, in Ontario, if you're a member, it's free, but it's not expensive if you're not a member. So yeah, it's, uh, it is
1: it is good. This webinar I was listening to, I did not remember who was hosting it, but it was just about two weeks ago, and um, oh, it was great. It was, oh, it was a woman from the Ontario Arts Council. Yeah. Uh, she, and uh, She described just in detail what you need to include in this mm-hmm. in this application and they, uh, to my surprise they want some really specific yeah. information and explanations yeah. it's it's a little bit more casual than I had thought in the in, because they want you to def- describe yeah. what you're doing especially in the budget they want not only the budget but why you believe that that's the budget mm-hmm. who's your target audience what's your yeah. revenue going to be like how do you know you're going to reach these certain these people yeah. and 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 why are you confident in this what what space have you picked they it's much more complicated than, oh, I need $35,000. And here's yeah. my breakdown. Yeah. It's about the math, but it's about also, uh, where if you don't get the full $20,000, uh, where can you make cuts? And yeah. where where are you getting free services? So they say, uh, if you got a, a studio who's going to give you some rehearsal space, put that in the budget. Rehearsal space, free. Yeah. So they don't, not only do they want... So they the, don't
0: look at it and they're thinking, oh, well, they haven't accounted for, yeah. for rehearsal space. They don't know what they're talking about. They want that
1: in there yeah. because they're saying, assume we don't know anything, and tell us everything. And so that's what's daunting. I have to make sure I get on all those details and really explain myself. What about
0: crowdfunding? Have you thought about...
1: I have. I also yeah. have a fundraiser uh, named Raheem, and he was helping me. Actually, the reason this kind of uh, 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 didn't work out the first time is that he's he has a, a health issue that got in the way. But he's my main fundraiser, right? Yeah. And so uh, he was he he was in charge of all that yeah. stuff. So he's still now he's better. So we're yeah. good. And so he's he's back onto it. So I have the grant. I have. Uh, I'm gonna try. I've always shied away from crowdfunding because I don't. I don't believe in asking my colleagues for money. I know they don't have any money. I don't have any money. And so while I appreciate the effectiveness of it, mm-hmm. and I will go there if I have to, but because I've found other ways to kind of avoid that for now, because I want them to pay to come see the show. Mm-hmm. I don't want them necessarily to help me produce it. I want them to enjoy. I want to I want to show them something, yeah. and I want them to pay for it because... Because I put it up and I yeah. put it in the theater and I did this and it's professional.
0: What's the? I mean, it's interesting because the, the thing about crowdfunding, like if you were to try to crowdfund and you only had your friends to go by, mm-hmm. you could never raise the money. Yeah. that's that's the the, the the truth. The whole thing about crowdfunding, as and I have I could rant about crowdfunding. Really? Oh, I could, I could. Um,
1: we'll have to talk about this later. <laughs>
0: but yeah, I, I won't. I won't now. I'm gonna prob- later on. I'll do it like an episode on. Crowdfunding. i crowdfunding. Good. But um, in turn like, if you can't, you have to find a way to get out of your network. It has to be a yes. pitch that's good enough to get attention. Um, it has to have perks that people want. Yep. And it has to, like, you have to be able to get people to share it. Mm-hmm. If your friends can't donate, your friends can share it.
1: Yes. Yeah. So that's,
0: I mean, that's, it, it's got to go. And I mean it's it's that's a full-time job like, yeah keeping track of that i
1: know thing. i have now i have six full-time jobs yeah, of course, and yeah. only one well, that pays of course
0: <laughs> yeah um well we're almost at the end of our time before we go i want to make sure that, that we cover um obviously you're on twitter yep um can you share your uh your your twitter handle uh
1: at l-a-p-i-c-c-i-n-i-n at la Picenin. uh I do. I'm now I'm a tweeter. I'm yeah. a person on the twit. Yeah. You
0: yeah. Yeah. It's a great way.
1: Uh, I do. I have a Cargo Collective website, um, Laura Pitch, uh, Cargo Collective slash Laura com, and I also have Laura com, which is the website for the Suicide Key, mm-hmm. where it has the donate button for the money. Always
0: important the donate button. Yeah. yeah. And
1: so the the the. My Cargo Collective, Cargo Collective website is more of my personal website uh, with, with that I set up with my pictures, my mm-hmm. videos, my blogs. And it addresses me as a dancer, singer, actor with yeah, all. Yeah. And I have a little you know, blog with my little opinions. Um, the suicide, com is suicide key based. Yeah. So it mostly has stuff about the show and a little bit about me. Because really what I'm trying to sell people on is me. Yeah. Uh, the show also, but me. If they trust me and they like me, then they're yeah. more willing to come see the show.
0: That's great. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for for talking. Thank to you. Me.
1: This has been great.